If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Jude. If you can't find it, turn to the very back of your Bible. Jude, right before Revelation. The epistle of Jude. I'd like everybody to take a look at that in your Bible because we're going to read through all of it briefly and then focus on the first few verses of it. The epistle of Jude, just before Revelation. If you don't know your Old Testament very well, some of Jude will be confusing because Jude will mention a lot of Old Testament stories. Conversely, if you don't know some apocryphal literature very well, you will also be confused because the book of Jude also makes mention of perhaps up to two books that are not in your Bible. Quotations or allusions from books that you may have never even heard of. And so whether you know your Old Testament or not, chances are you're still going to learn something new out of this very unique letter from a man by the name of Jude to a group of Jewish Christians. I'd like to ask us all to stand as we read this letter. I'm going to read all of it. We'll go through it quickly. But I want you, as we read this letter, I want you to listen and pay attention to Jude's emotion. Listen to his emotion as he writes this letter. And try to put that emotion, that, that, that what you see in Jude, try to put it into a word or two as you read through this. The epistle of Jude, verse 1. Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward He destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers, they defile the flesh. They reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. 
They've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, the raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they've committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Verse 16, these are grumblers. These are complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers, in the last time, who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on, the, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. On, and on some, have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. Amen. You may be seated. Emotion. Give me a word. Give me one or two words. What did you hear from Jude as you read this entire letter? Give me a word or two that you, that you caught that you think it explains how Jude was feeling. Passion. What else? Persevere. What else? Urgency. Anyone else? Absolutely. Passion. Perseverance, urgency. It's interesting when you read verse 3, at the start of verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, while I wanted to say one thing, Something compelled me to write something different. On your outline, there's a quote from William MacDonald at the top. Jude would have preferred to write about the common Christian faith shared with his readers. But false teachings were becoming so prevalent that Jude was constrained to pen a plea to contend earnestly for the faith. Jude does not mince words. He pulls out all the stops, as it were, to unmask these notorious heretics, drawing illustrations from nature, from the Old Testament, and even from Jewish tradition like Enoch, to stir up the faithful. 
Jude does not mince words. If Jude lived in an era of political correctness, Jude would have failed miserably because his letter is nothing but politically correct. His letter is very much straight to the point, offending many perhaps as he writes about the ways of those who have gone astray. Tom Constable also writes on your outline, Jude, though, he's a troubled pastor. He's anxious to shake the shoulders of his community, to wake them up to the threats in their very midst. For Jude, faith in Jesus was a matter of life and death. And anyone or anything that threatened that life of faith was indeed a mortal enemy. Let's take a look again at verses 1 and 2 of this epistle of Jude. This is part one of a four-part series in Jude entitled, Guard the Faith. Look at verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Who was Jude? Who was Jude and who did he write to? On your outline there, right under that question, who was Jude, you'll see the words in Greek. The word there is Judas. Judas in Greek. The first word of the book of Jude is his name. And in Greek, it is the name Judas. Can you speculate why we don't see the word Judas here in verse 1? Tom, do you know? Judas was a bad guy as far as we're concerned, right? Who was the great traitor of the 12 disciples? Who was it? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. And yet, in a book designed, in a book designed to speak against false teaching and apostasy, the man who wrote it is none other than a man by the name of Judas, nicknamed Jude in the New Testament. Who is Judas or Jude? He is not Judas Iscariot. You can wipe your brow there. He is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. I've given you some uh, text there that you can look up on your own. Matthew 13, verse 55, in which it is mentioned that Judas is one of the brothers of Jesus. And church tradition and history has demonstrated that this Judas of the epistle of Jude is none other than the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was an unbelieving man while Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry according to John 7. But he later came to faith. In Acts 1, it says that the, the, the apostles were praying with Jesus' brothers of all people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is indicated there that Jesus' brothers uh, and their family were out ministering on behalf of the gospel. And so Judas and James and other half-brothers of Jesus that are mentioned in Matthew 13.55, all of them uh, had a measure of ministry after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. 
We say half-brother, uh, of course, uh, because uh, Jesus himself was born of a virgin, born of the Virgin Mary. His brothers, of course, were not uh, immaculately conceived. Uh, they were conceived through the natural processes. And so they're appropriately titled the half-brothers of Jesus. Jude was a Jewish Christian, likely from Galilee of Nazareth. And he frequently in his letter quoted the Hebrew scriptures rather than the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. The genre or or the type of of letter that we're reading here is what's called an epistolary sermon. It's likely that, that, that James, Hebrews, First John and Jude were homilies that could have easily been spoken before a congregation and but were put into written form, epistolary sermon. And Jude reads very much like a sermon, like someone preaching it. He wrote to a Jewish audience sometime in the late 60s. He calls them, he says that they are called, sanctified, and preserved. Sanctified by the Father and preserved by Jesus Christ. These terms are clearly showing that these people were Christians. And he he issues a prayer of blessing upon them. That they might have mercy, peace, and love multiplied to them. We don't know who exactly were his audience. We don't know which church it was that he was writing to, but we have a good, reasonable guess that it was a group of Jewish Christians just before A.D. 70. Now, what about the purpose of Jude? And this gets to the crux of why I wanted to, uh, to spend four, the next three Sundays um, focused on this book. The purpose of Jude. Take a look at verses 3 And four, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude had an original purpose when he took pen to paper to this group of Christians. He had an original purpose in mind. It says in verse 3 that he wanted to write about their common salvation. That is to say, he wanted to write to everyone in this community about the common blessings that you have as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. That you're born again. That you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That you're saved unto eternal life in heaven that is never, uh, never to be lost. But Jude's purpose changed as he thought more about his community that he was writing to. That purpose changed. He said, I found it necessary, in verse 3, to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's purpose changed. In the words of one scholar, God's Spirit so influenced this yielded scribe that he sensed a change of direction. 
And so we put there at the bottom of your outline there, a newly revised purpose. Jude had a newly revised purpose. At one point, he wished to write about common salvation, but things had changed. And this is instead what he wrote about. On the very bottom of your outline, write these words. The purpose of Jude, the purpose of Jude, right there on the bottom, guard the Christian faith. Guard the Christian faith and strengthen your own for the danger of departure or apostasy is real. I'll say that again at the very bottom. Guard the Christian faith and strengthen your own for the danger of departure or apostasy is very real. First, let's look at the initial part of that purpose statement. On the back of your outline, the first part, guard the Christian faith. Jude says in verse 3, contend earnestly for the faith. The word contend there, epagonizomai in Greek. Epagonizomai, excuse me, in Greek. It means to contend, means to struggle with, means to fight, means to compete. It has that idea of someone almost climbing up on a mountain and fending off others. You all have played uh, the child's game King of the Mountain, right? Who's played King of the Mountain? A few of you. All right, and you gotta, you gotta push everybody off and, and keep everybody down so that you can be at the very top. And the one, the last one standing is the winner. King of the Mountain. Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith. He says, put, shun and put away all those things that would attempt to take the cross of Christ off of your highest perspective. Take, put the cross center and high and take everything that comes against it and push it back down, Jude says. Contend earnestly. For the faith. What is the faith? The faith there is the tenets of the Christian faith. The doctrine of the faith. The ideas of Scripture. The teaching of God's Word, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude makes a comprehensive statement there that the Christians of his day have in their possession the teachings of God's Word. And he says, guard that faith. Guard those beliefs with everything in you. Exert everything to keep evil away. Exert everything to ensure that the doctrine of the Scripture, the teaching of God's Word, the words of Jesus Christ, that they might be preserved. So this first part, guard the Christian faith, it is a command to protect all that is encompassed in our Christian faith. Our God, His Word, and all the beliefs therein. And then comes the second part of the purpose statement. We have guard the Christian faith and strengthen your own. Strengthen your own faith. Take a look at the end of the letter of Jude. Verse 20. He alludes to strengthening of your own personal faith in verse 20. Do you see it there? He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
unto eternal life. Grow your faith. Deepen your faith. Don't just guard the Christian faith generally. You know, there's a lot of people that, that guard the Christian faith generally. There are people who uh, have a deep desire to make sure that, uh, uh, let's say, that, that, that prayer is maintained in public school. There are those who have a deep desire to maintain uh, that, 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 that prayers are said every time before a public meeting. Because from their vantage point, they're trying to guard the, the historical and traditional elements of the Christian faith in our society. And yet often those same people who are such guardians of the Christian faith generically let their guard down when it comes to their own spirituality. When it comes to their own relationship with God. They're talking loudly in the public square, but you look at their life and you think, are, are you intimate with Jesus? Are you experiencing a deepening faith with the Lord? Or do you just talk a big game? Jude says, don't just guard the faith generically, but strengthen your own individually. Deepen your faith. Deepen your commitment to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit. One man put it, a Christian must contend without being contentious and must testify of the gospel without ruining his testimony. Finally, we are to guard the faith generically. We are to guard the teaching of God's word and the beliefs and the words of Christ. We are to strengthen our own faith individually. We're to deepen it and walk with Jesus every day. And finally, we are to watch out because the danger of departure or apostasy is real. The danger of departure, number three, or apostasy is real. Jude speaks often of what we might often call apostasy or a departure from God's truth or of the Christian faith in particular. This emphasis on apostasy in Jude's letter puts him in close company with Second uh, Peter. Second uh, Peter, uh, just a few books prior to Jude, speaks often of guarding the faith entrusted to us and of strengthening our own faith and of watching out for those who would try and shipwreck our faith. In fact, if you read Second Peter 2 and you compare it with Jude, the chapter in Jude, you will find incredible parallels between 2 Peter 2 and the letter of Jude. Very similar themes are taking place there. But while Peter says that false teachers and scoffers will be coming, he says that in chapter 2 verse 1, Peter says false teachers and scoffers, they're on their way, get ready. Jude says that such individuals have already crept in. Look at verse 4. For certain men have already crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 4 says that these false teachers, these, these individuals have already snuck in unnoticed. 
noticed. In one Bible translation, it reads, they wormed their way in. They wormed their way in. Who were these false teachers? Who were these apostates? In the, or in the words of Jude, who were these sneaky men? Well, we have a lot of descriptions. If you were to read, we, we just read all of Jude. Let me pull out just a few of the descriptions that we've already read about these individuals. They're ungodly. They have lewd behavior. They pervert God's grace. They deny God in Christ. They have sexual, they're sexually immoral. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. They're greedy. They seek profit. They serve only themselves. They're grumblers, complainers. They're lustful. They flatter to gain advantage. They're mockers. They're sensual. They cause divisions. And they do not have the Spirit, Jude says. Many, many descriptions. As you read Jude, of these individuals who Jude is very concerned about. George Ladd, on your outline there, who were these sneaky men? G stands for George. George Ladd calls them libertine Gnostics. Libertine Gnostics. What does that mean? Well, the word libertine, write this down, it means reckless. Reckless, immoral behavior. Having libertine behavior or a reckless, immoral behavior. Write down that word reckless. And then Gnostics, a group, a group of individuals that was arising within the New Testament church in and around the time of Jude, a little bit more prominently later than Jude. But the Gnostics were those who deny, deny the person of Jesus, who mock apostolic authority, and who inflate their own knowledge and practice. I'll say that again. Gnostics are those who, on your outline, deny the person of Jesus, who mock the apostles, apostolic authority, and who inflate their own knowledge and or practice. Libertine Gnostics. These men, they scorned the authority of God. These men looked upon God's truth and they shunned it. They departed from it. And thus they're rightly labeled apostates. In fact, Jude is often humorously subtitled the Acts of the Apostates. But let one thing be very clear in our mind. As we walk through this book, as we begin to wade through this book over the next month of June... Let us be clear that Jude is warning Christians. Jude is warning Christians about these apostates. Not because he thinks these sneaky men are an insignificant, irrelevant group, but because Jude knows how tempting and appealing this group can be. Let me say that again. Jude is warning Christians about these sneaky men, not because he thinks they're an insignificant group of men or an irrelevant group, but because Jude knows how tempting and appealing this group is. You see, you don't warn people about a threat that isn't real. You don't warn people about a threat that isn't real. 
Jude knows that these false teachers have appeal. He knows that the church is susceptible to them. And he knows that if Christians are not diligent, they can fall prey to false teachers and they can follow in their footsteps. As you read commentaries on Jude, as you read what uh, Bible scholars have said about Jude, they spill a lot of ink over whether or not a Christian can apostatize. They spill a lot of ink on whether or not a Christian can one day down the road depart from the faith. They look at the book of Jude and they see Jude's concern and they know it's a real concern, a valid concern. They recognize that he's writing to Christians. He says beloved in verse 3. He says they're called, sanctified, and preserved in verse, verse 1. These are a group of Christians that he's writing to and so the scholars who read Jude, they wonder, is it possible for a Christian to apostatize? Is it possible for a Christian to depart from the faith? once and for all entrusted to the saints? My answer is very, very, very simple. Of course a Christian can apostatize. Of course a Christian can depart from the faith. If they could not, then the book of Jude is meaningless. Jude is specifically written so that believers will hold fast and not depart from the faith. That's why it's written. And if it were not possible for a Christian to go astray, if it were not possible for a Christian to depart from the faith, then Jude would not be in our Bible. And neither would any other passage of Scripture that deals with perseverance or staying the course or holding fast to the faith. On your outline there, Tom Constable writes, quote, Jude wrote to enable us to be faithful. Since Jude wrote this warning epistle to Christians, it must be possible for Christians to apostatize. You don't warn people about a threat that isn't real. Christians can and do depart from the faith. And that reality explains much of Jude's great emotion and passion in this letter. But that leads to a question, a question that all of you are probably thinking and are wondering about. On your outline, just in the middle there on the second side, if someone apostatizes or departs, does that mean they go to hell? If someone apostatizes or departs, does that mean they go to hell? It's a great question. Remember, apostasy assumes that you have something to depart from. I'll say that again. Apostasy assumes that you have something to depart from. In the case of these apostates in the book of Jude, these sneaky men, 
that he speaks of in verse 4. In the case of these apostates, Jude makes clear, very clear in verse 19, that these men never had the Holy Spirit to begin with. Verse 4 said that long ago, these men were marked out for condemnation. So these men, like all men, according to Romans 1, they may have had a measure of God's truth. They may have had a measure of natural revelation. They may have had a measure of knowing who God was and what His law was and what He required of them, but they never, ever had saving faith. None of these men had saving faith. They had a measure, a, no, a measure of the knowledge of God's truth, so they had something to leave, but they never had saving faith. So did these men go to hell? The answer is yes. On your outline? The answer is yes, but not because, listen to this, but not because they apostatized. Hear me clearly. These men did not go to hell because they departed from God's truth. These men went to hell because they never believed God's truth to begin with. How do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? We are saved. We are born again. We are regenerated. We become a child of God when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Amen? We go to heaven when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. The sneaky men of Jude apostatized. They departed from God's truth. And they went to hell. But they didn't go to hell because they apostatized. They went to hell because they never believed in Jesus Christ to begin with. On your outline, if they were never born again by faith, yes, they went to hell. But that brings us to another question on your outline. What if some Christian apostatizes, departs? Does that mean they go to hell? Well, what about those who have trusted in Jesus as, in their, as their Savior? What if they depart from the faith? We know, as we've just said, that once we believed in Jesus for salvation, we're eternally saved. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith. So we know that we've been born again at the moment of faith. We're given the free gift of eternal life. And John, uh, Jesus says in John 10, 28, that once we have eternal life, that we shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of the Father's hand. Someone once said, though, well, sure, no one can snatch them from the Father's hand, but you can jump out, right? The implication there... Uh, for a person who says that you can jump out of the Father's hand, the implication there is that maybe you can renege your faith. And maybe you can renounce your faith and jump out. Jump out, as it were, from the faith. To go from, from a, a state of, uh, of being a child of God to nothing at all. But the Bible says that's not true. The Bible says that's not true. 
You can't do that. 2 Timothy 2.13 on your outline, Paul says quite clearly that if we remain faithless, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, after having come to faith in Christ, if we are faithless, that is to say if we lose faith or if we depart from faith or if we renege faith or if we renounce faith, if we are faithless, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his promise. A promise once given to you by faith in Christ when you become a child of God is a promise God will never renege on despite what you do after. So on your outline, letter B. In answering the question, if someone apostatizes or departs, does that mean they go to hell? Letter B. You know what? If they were born again by faith in Jesus, then the answer is no. No. The sneaky men, they departed from what they knew of God's truth. They apostatized, but they didn't go to hell because they apostatized. They went to hell because they never believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Likewise, many Christians become a, become a child of God, and later on in life, they look up at God and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm, I'm walking away. I'm going to go to a life of drugs. I'm going to go to a life of alcohol. I'm going to go to a life of sexual morality. I'm going to renege all of what I had once believed Lord and I'm walking away from you a Christian can apostatize too they can depart from the faith they can walk away from God but there's a difference and the difference is if that individual at one point in their life genuinely trusted Jesus as their savior they cannot leave him they cannot wish it away they cannot will it away. They can apostatize. They can depart. But God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Even when you don't keep your vow, God keeps his. Once a person has trusted Jesus as their Savior, they are saved forevermore. And even if they later become faithless, that is to say, lose their faith, or depart from their faith, or apostatize, God remains faithful to them, for he cannot deny himself. And so the issue is not whether someone apostatized or not, not whether some departed or not. The issue is, did you believe in Jesus as your Savior? And if there was, a moment in your life where you looked upon Jesus and said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Then at that moment in time, you became a child of God, never to be revoked, never to be reneged, never to be renounced, no matter what you do thereafter. That begs another question. Okay, if Christians who apostatize still go to heaven, then why write Jude at all? 
<laughs> hey, if I, got, if I got fire insurance, I'll live however I want to live. If there's nothing I can do now, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Why, why did Jude even bother? Why is he so passionate? Hey, we're, those Christians are all going to heaven anyway. Why is Jude so concerned? I'll give you four reasons, and these aren't the only four. Quickly on your outline, and then we're almost over here. Number one is to ensure a healthy and thriving earthly life for Christians. Write that down. That we might ensure a healthy and thriving earthly life for Christians. We looked at 3 John 1, 2 a couple weeks ago. John says to Gaius, he says, I want your health and your prosperity to be in proportion to your soul. He says, I want you to live a good life. I want you to live a good life. And that requires that you honor the Lord. Secondly, to motivate Christians to seek heavenly rewards. We underestimate this every time in the New Testament, but it's riddled throughout. Heavenly reward is a motivator. Sometimes we don't realize it, but what we have in store for faithfulness will be worth it. And those of you who have persevered, you will know, you will know why you did when you stand before Christ. And those of you who didn't persevere, but who still entered heaven, you will also know a measure of what you missed out on in your earthly life. There will be a moment, however long I do not know, only in the, only in the mind of God, but John speaks of that we might not be ashamed at his coming. There will be shame for some Christians. Others will celebrate because They were striving with the Lord throughout their life. Third, to protect the witness of the church. To protect the witness of the church, that's a good motivation for Christians to not depart from the faith and go astray. And finally, to be an appealing example of Jesus to the world. That we might be salt and light. That others might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Jude. It's a big letter. And it's an intimidating letter. But I want to close with a few questions to ask you. If you're wondering, does Jude apply to me? Am I going to learn anything in this book? Am I going to grow by reading this very unique and strange letter? Let me ask you four questions. Number one, answer yes or no right next to it. Answer yes or no. Number one, am I bored and uninterested in learning sound Christian doctrine? Am I bored and uninterested by the thought of learning Christian theology? Secondly, do I procrastinate and put off deepening my intimacy or my walk with Jesus? Do I just keep putting it off and say, I'll get to it soon, but not yet? Third, am I unduly attracted to other worldly teaching? or ideologies, or spirituality? Do, do I love the idea uh, of Eastern religions? And I, I want to learn all about them and follow them. Am I enamored by, by certain worldly philosophies around me? Lastly, is there a, a charismatic teacher or a group that I am improperly revering? 
Is there a, a, a professor? Is there a teacher? Is there a, a group of people who just, boy, they, they seem to know how to live in a way that's, well, it's different than the Bible, but boy, they, they sure do look like they're, they're really thriving and growing and they're really enlightened people. If you answered no to all of these questions, to every single one of them, then the chances are that you probably have a keen idea of why Jude is so passionate. If you answered no to all those questions, you probably read Jude and you understand his passion, you understand his conviction, you know as Jude does that the things we read in this letter are a matter of life and death and I'm quite sure you're already excited about this letter. I think most of us answered yes to at least one of these questions though. I think most of us, honestly, looking at these four questions, could have honestly answered yes to at least one of them. And if you answered yes to at least one of these questions, then Jude is perfect for you. For the letter of Jude will bring to your attention areas in your life that are lacking. Whether they be an apathy towards learning sound doctrine, whether it be uh, a sluggishness to draw near in your walk with Christ, or whether it be an immature longing to learn from the teachings and philosophies of this world that are not of Christ. You are perfectly positioned to listen and learn from the letter of Jude. Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we're asking for your grace and guidance as we begin this letter of Jude. Uh, it's a penetrating letter, Lord, one that cuts to the heart of many of us. Some of us get bored with theology and doctrine. Others of us we love theology and doctrine, but our own personal relationship with Christ is a bit weak, is a bit unintimate. And still others of us, Lord, we like the Scriptures and, and it's good to read from time to time, but boy, we have such an interest in some new thing, some new ideology some new worldly religion and we're becoming enamored by a new teacher who's not a Christian or by a new group who they look so enlightened but they're, but they're not Christian. God, we're all coming from different backgrounds here. We're all coming from different uh, situations in life. But Jude, Lord, we're learning now. Jude is perfectly positioned for all of us. We're asking you, God, that you would guide us through this book, that you would help us to catch his passion in his heart, and that we would, as a community, as a church, and as individuals, guard our faith, that we would strengthen our
our own faith. And that we would watch out for those who would have us depart from it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.